Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. My name's Rick Zamprin. Horror movies may trigger PTSD. We may soon see an Ontario version of the People's Party of Canada. Rapid COVID-19 testing is coming to some Ontario schools, but should all schools participate? We analyze the future of air travel in our area, and Mac Kids Hospital is getting ready for a surge in COVID-19 hospitalizations. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast starts now. Wake up with the information you need to get the most out of your day. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. We've now uh, watched the data, we've learned uh, from international experience uh, and learned from our local experience that we do think there'll be a targeted role for rapid antigen uh, testing to be put in play. It's fully up to the public health unit. There's nothing mandatory. It's only for the unvaccinated. I mean, really, he's just allowing the public health units to do what they want with rapid testing, which is, frankly, exactly what's happening right now. This was literally an announcement about nothing. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Those are the voices of Chief Medical Officer of Health here in Ontario, Dr. Kieran Moore, rolling out a rapid COVID-19 testing program for schools, as well as biostatistician Ryan Imgrund, who told CHML's Bill Kelly show yesterday, this is, quote, a nothing announcement. Well, let's ask our next guest. She is the executive director with the People for Education, Annie Kidder. Good morning, Annie. How are you? Good morning. I am fine, thank you. Well, some, as you heard, are calling this a non-story, a nothing announcement. Do you agree? No, I don't. I'm kind of surprised uh, at that reaction. And even the reaction of saying uh, this is being left up to public health units. I think public health is where this should be sitting. Uh, public health units have the expertise and have the people who are looking at it from a public health perspective. Um, and I think that that definitely this is a case where it's important to listen to the health professionals, the epidemiologists, the experts in that way um, to try to understand how we can effectively and efficiently uh, provide rapid testing where it's going to make the biggest difference. Now, I'm going to interrupt my own self here. So this <laughs> is yet another example of why we need a health and education uh, task force, because then we would have the health people and the education people together at one table, uh, the people with the ex- expertise and the people with the experience on the ground, trying to sort of work out all the kinks in plans, figure out how things could be implemented figuring out where, you know, we're best kind of directing our policies. And we don't have that right now. So we're continuing to, uh, you know, play catch up or do a kind of patchwork of, of strategies across the province. So I can see why people are frustrated. But I also think, you know, this is a step. They've been slow in taking it. There are other provinces that are already doing something like this. Um, but I think I think it is right that um, that public health is is a kind of driver of this because they know uh, where there are concerns or where there are more cases. So from what I'm hearing from what you're saying is you like the plan, but it's not 100 percent perfect. Oh, absolutely. It's definitely not 100 percent perfect, but it's OK and it's a good step. Um, it, it definitely, you know, the idea of targeting communities where the case counts are high. Uh, I know, you know, Hamilton may be one of those communities and making sure then uh, that we're catching cases before they can spread in schools, before there are outbreaks in schools, because that's the thing that we want to try and prevent. This won't prevent COVID, uh, but it may help to to kind of mitigate the spread. 
Otherwise, you know, I, I know people have been calling for just give everybody the rapid test, let every parent have access to them. But I'm not sure, you know, really from a practical perspective, whether or not that's possible. Some provinces are doing that, but they're very small and they have they don't have two million students uh, to, you know, that to be tested over and over and over and over. So definitely Nova Scotia, they're, they're giving parents access, families access, families of kids 11 and under, that's the other important thing here. Just kids who can't be vaccinated. Um, they're giving them all access to the test, but I think that this is a start. I'm sorry, and I, that, I, there is one more thing. The thing that we seem to also be refusing to do in Ontario is making vaccinations mandatory because that's the, that is the real prevention uh, tool. And if vaccinations were mandatory for all staff, and all students 12 and over, then the little kids would be at much less risk. Do you think we'll get there to that point? Oh, I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I am frustrated about yeah. that because because it, it, there is no question that that is the way to do it. Um, we, you know, we've seen what happens. In New York City just made it mandatory for all school staff, and they get vaccinated then. They go, oh, fine, fine, I'll get vaccinated, except the ones that are really, really, really anti-vaxxers. It, it, it pushes people to get vaccinated, and I think that the signal it sends to families is you have to do this for your kids to go to school, and it's a way of signaling this is incredibly important, we believe in this, we trust this science, um, and this will help make sure that your kids can stay in school. And, you know, I hope it's a step that will be taken. We already have a whole, you know, Immunization of School Pupils Act that's got a list of diseases, that are mandatory to be vaccinated before, before you can go to school. All we have to do is add COVID-19 to that list. And, you know, Bob's your uncle, sort of. Um, But, you know, it's definitely time to do that. Once the vaccine for children 5 to 12 comes out, will it be added to that list of vaccinations? Well, we haven't added it for the 12 and up kids, so right. I hope so. I mean, I am waiting. They keep, they still keep saying they're not going to do it. But it's definitely, you know, the, the thing, if we look at other diseases that are on that list, chicken pop, pox, whooping cough, you know, uh, measles, mumps, those diseases hardly ever happen anymore. There are no outbreaks in schools of those diseases. And that's because you have to be vaccinated for them. And and it's it's very, very clear. And it's really hard to understand uh, the resistance to adding uh, COVID-19 to that list. Our guest is Annie Kidder, Executive Director of People for Education here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We're talking about uh, Ontario's uh, new rapid COVID-19 testing program for schools, at least in areas of the province with high transmission. At the end of the day, is this going to keep more children in school, do you think? I hope so. I mean, it should. So if we look at areas where it's important to understand in Ontario, if there are two kids in a school, that's called an outbreak. Um, So that's not very many. But if we look at areas with high community transmission, where we're suddenly seeing a lot of cases, and definitely we're seeing them in little kids because they can't get vaccinated. This is a way of catching that very, very quickly before a child has a chance to go spread it, you know, throughout the playground and to all their other classmates. So it's definitely one tool. It is one, um, you know, but it's, it, it, and it's definitely a positive step. And it for sure should uh, prevent 
uh, some outbreaks. It's not going to save the world or prevent everything, um, especially when we have community spread. And again, to harp on this, when everybody isn't vaccinated, who could be vaccinated. Um, but it, but it, it, it's definitely going to help. The other side of this equation, too, and we should not ignore this, is for parents of those who are unvaccinated and for those who are vaccinated, it provides some peace of mind as well, I would think. Well, I think so. And I think that it's the same as uh, knowing that, you know, you can't, that everybody has to be vaccinated to uh, be inside a restaurant or something like that. So it's a way of ensuring, especially in a place where there's high spread for a parent, uh, that knowing that um, there is going to be testing done. There's going to be, we're going to try and make sure they are going to try and make sure that nobody who tests positive uh, is in school in places where there's high spread. So it should, it should make pa- parents feel um, a, a bit more confident. It's very hard. I really, really, really empathize with, with uh, parents of kids who can't be vaccinated and they want them to go to school because they should be in school. Um, yeah, you know, I, I'm grateful my children are grown up. It must be incredibly hard right now. It's, I think it's important that we keep remembering how much stress still exists. We're not out of the woods. There's so much stress for families, for all the people working in schools, you know, to try and make this work. And again, this is, you know, one new tiny step. Um, you know, happy that we've taken this step. But yeah, I think for parents, this is hard. It should make the parents where there is this testing, where they're seeing big numbers, uh, it should make them feel a bit better. Annie, as always, really uh, thank you for the time and uh, we'll chat with you down the road. Okay, thanks a lot. Annie Kidder is the Executive Director of People for Education, joining us to chat about these uh, new rapid tests that are going to be unleashed on some Ontario schools, at least those with high transmission or in areas of high transmission. How about some news and opinion to go with your coffee? This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. As more children, many of whom are not yet eligible to be vaccinated against COVID-19, contract the virus, McMaster Children's Hospital is getting ready to expand its intensive care unit in case we see a surge in hospitalizations. Dr. Angelo Microgianakis is the chief of pediatrics at the Children's Hospital and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Angelo, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm well. And yourself? I'm not too bad. Thanks for joining us today. What preparations are being made at Mac Kids Hospital? We're keeping a close eye on the situation around the world and in other areas that are, are a little more advanced than the situation in Ontario so that we can be prepared. There are more children uh, experiencing COVID. The fortunate thing in our circumstances that at this point in time is different from other regions is it's not yet translating to more children in hospital with COVID or having more severe illness. So in the fall... Uh, is a normal increase in viral activity for kids as they go back to school and get back to normal activities and into classrooms and closed spaces. What's different this year is that COVID is one of those viruses, and we have to be very vigilant in terms of uh, assessing kids as soon as they begin to have symptoms. So every cough, every fever now requires an assessment to make sure that it's not covid But what we're seeing is a return of some of the normal viruses, regular cold viruses we see this time of year with a little bit of COVID, but the COVID is not turning into hospitalizations at this point. 
if it does, is this going to be a big problem at Matt Kids Hospital or in Hamilton in general? It has the potential to be, and that's why we're preparing in advance works happening at the provincial level and the local level, realizing that the children's hospitals have uh, the only pediatric intensive care capacity and that we need to be prepared and uh, have that ready to expand if the need should arise. So things are happening at the provincial level as well as at the local level, and we are looking at ways that we can expand the PICU capacity and work with our uh, community partners and other children's hospitals to make sure uh, we're ready should the need arise. Does that increase in capacity, can that happen overnight or does that take a few days? Oh, it probably takes more than a few days, Rick. Um, we're talking about very skilled expertise in the nursing and respiratory therapist, the amount of uh, equipment necessary and, and specialty care, but it's really the personnel and the expertise. So that's why we've started early and we've been working since the end of the summer, having a, uh, noticed what's going on in other parts of the, the U.S. and the, the world to see if we can start ramping up and, and getting prepared But the reality of being in the pandemic for a long period of time, uh, uh, health, human resources will continue to be a challenge to make sure we can staff the extra beds and the extra space. We're chatting with Dr. Angela Microgianakis, the Chief of Pediatrics at McMaster Children's Hospital on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Give our listeners a glimpse inside Matt Kids Hospital during the pandemic. How has your team coped? It's been different in different areas of the hospital. The emergency department has become quite busy since the beginning of September, as I said, with uh, restrictions uh, decreasing, trying to get back to normal life, back to school and back to some activities. Now that... um, COVID is potentially out there. Every time a child is symptomatic, they, the family needs an assessment and a test. So we've been working with the city and the region to create pediatric streams in the assessment centers to make sure they're comfortable seeing and, uh, and assessing kids with minor cold-like symptoms. The eMERGE department is, is preparing for uh, sicker patients, but we are seeing an increased volume We are busy. The hospital is near capacity in terms of admissions, but not from COVID illness, from other types of illness uh, that we usually see this time of year or some things that have been exacerbated or or, uh, during the pandemic. We'll have to leave it there. Dr. Michael Giannakis, thank you for the time today and thank you for all that you and your staff uh, do on a daily basis at Matt Kids Hospital. Thank you, Rick. We appreciate the support of our community and everyone who believes in the Children's Hospital, and we will be there to look after our patients and our families. Great to hear. Dr. Angela Microgianakis, Chief of Pediatrics at McMaster Children's Hospital, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton. Serving up a healthy dose of news, traffic, and engaging opinion. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. There is talk that a group affiliated with the federal PPC party, the People's Party of Canada, may be working behind the scenes to create a provincial PPC here in Ontario. Very interesting. Daniel Perry is a consultant with Summa Strategies and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Daniel. Good morning, Rick. How are you? I'm not too bad. Yourself? Good, thank you. So when I first heard this story, I said, say what? Your thoughts? (laughs) 
I had a very similar reaction to that <laughs> as well. Uh, I was quite surprised, but at the end of the day, the PPC had a good campaign. They feel very confident in themselves, right or wrong. Um, but they're looking to translate that and to kind of build off of the momentum that they had at the national scene and bring it to the provincial scene. Will they have the same success? That is a great question. I don't think they will. Yeah, our, our you know political views aside, we can't deny mm-hmm. that the PPC federally has gained some momentum whenever you... Uh, you know, garner almost 5%, I think it was 4.9% of the national vote. Still, they didn't win any seats in Parliament. We can't deny that there's some momentum with the movement. Uh, in saying that, how does someone form a political party? And, uh, you know, what are some of the uh, the hurdles that they have to jump over? Surprisingly enough, forming a political party is not overly hard in Ontario. You need to get some signatures. You need to check some boxes with Elections Ontario. The hard part is actually organizing and being on the ground and getting candidates nominated and really just trying to gain gain that support as well as creating a data management system so you can keep track of all the constituents in your riding and ID vote on it for Election Day. It's a lot harder than it sounds, but I think they're going to be in for a bit of a challenge just because it's a little bit different provincially than it is federally. So how so? Uh, well, especially when it comes to looking at the actual oh, during the writ period, uh, you have to keep track of a lot of uh, details when it comes to who's going to be supporting you, who's not going to be supporting you. So having a, an established central database is very important. And I don't believe the PPC has that. Uh, and an Excel spreadsheet won't cut it this time around. <laughs> so can this potentially be done before next summer's provincial election? I mean, the clock is ticking, but it sounds like they're really under the gun and, and may not have enough time. I wouldn't put anything past the PPC. They're very eager to um, create stuff and establish stuff. I think the challenge that they're going to be facing is when it comes to their electorate, because it's mainly focused on a protest movement of Mm -hmm. one that doesn't like COVID. And hopefully when we go to the polls uh, and the next election here in Ontario, we won't be talking about COVID. We won't be talking about vaccines. We'll be talking about other issues that matter to Ontario. And we'll be looking in the rearview mirror, reflecting on COVID. And they won't have see the same support as they saw in this election. That would be nice. Daniel Perry is our guest. He is a consultant with Summa Strategies here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. The I guess the biggest question is, is there enough support for a PPC Ontario party? I think there will be. The thing is that, again, it's about, it is a protest movement. It's not about really just, no, it's not a partisan one. It's a protest movement at the end of the day. And it's likely to take votes away from other major political parties, including the Conservatives, as well as the Green Party, like we saw in the federal election. They took votes away in Atlantic Canada from the Green Party, which really saw them collapse out that way. So I think that they will be able to find garner some support, but they'll be fighting with other uh, parties too, such as like the Canadian Heritage, as well as the Libertarian Party, because they feed off that base. The long-term sustainability remains a big question mark because, as you said, this is a protest movement now. You know, the anti-vaccines, the you know, the anti-lockdown, the freedom to not wear a mask if they want or not get a vaccine. That long-term sustainability is, uh, to me, maybe the biggest question mark of them all. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that completely. I think that the PPC found this wedge issue in the, the past campaign federally, and they really tapped into this disdain towards a liberal government, towards requiring getting a vaccine, and people wanting to fight back and protest against like the mainstream establishment. But when things go back to normal and we're not talking about these issues, I think that wedge is going to go away, and they're going to either go away with that issue or they're going to have to find a new wedge to kind of 
bring people back into their party and create some interest. And I just don't see that happening again. So what do they morph into, whether it's this provincial party or even the federal party? What's their next wedge issue or what's their next, you know, flag in the sand? I think time will tell. I can see them trying to tap into the frustration around firearms that was brought up in the last election. I think that's an issue that matters to a lot of their voters. Will that resonate with the rest of Canadians? I don't think so. But I think that fringe that really are energized by the PPC, I think they would be interested in talking more about guns and creating more relaxed laws around them. What do you think Maxime Bernier, the leader of the federal PPC, is thinking about this? I think he's excited. This has been a great vanity project for him. So if he can continue to beat the drum, I think he's excited to tap into this uh, excitement that's around his party and continue to boost not only his ego, but his status of his party. Does uh, this provincial version need his approval at all? Because they'll be flying under the same banner. I would say so. It would definitely need his approval because it's his party at the end of the day. Uh, it's interesting that it will be in Ontario and not a Quebec wing, considering he was a former Quebec MP. But I think he will be signing off at it, on it at the end of the day, or at the very least, we could see maybe people within his organization spinning into a new party that's very similar to the PPC, but separate. What are the chances we see PPC provincial parties spread out across the country? Remote? Uh, I would say remote. I think it's it has support in pockets of Canada. I think that we might see some support come out of like Western Canada in particular, mm-hmm. where they did very well, placing second place in some ridings. Um, Ontario, like they announced yesterday, it very much could be in play. So I think it's definitely on the table. Yeah, well, we'll uh, keep an eye on this because it is uh, very interesting in terms of uh, whether or not another provincial party is going to be uh, on a future ballot. We shall see. Daniel, really appreciate the time today. Thank you so much. Daniel Perry, consultant with Summa Strategies here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. I should mention that the regional coordinator with the federal PPC for Southwestern Ontario um, said, quote, we are currently in the exploratory stage and no decision has been made yet. Uh, As we know, the federal version of the party founded by Maxime Bernier a few years ago uh, positions itself further to the right of their conservative party rivals. And uh, as I mentioned, garnered nearly 5% of the national votes, but uh, again, did not win any seats in the House of Commons. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. Whether you have been in the mindset of buying a home or selling your home, or maybe your kids or even grandchildren are in that frame of mind, uh, you're looking around town thinking, can I afford a house in Hamilton? Average price now nearly $800,000 in the city of Hamilton. That is a a price that we've never seen. In fact, $796,000 in change, avid price in September in this city. Sales going up last month, prices going up last month. Uh, When will this trend end? Will it ever end? Well, let's ask one of the experts. She's the president of the Realtors Association of Hamilton Burlington. Donna Bacher joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Donna. Good morning, Rick. So September was still, I don't know if red hot is a term, but it was it was certainly a busy month. Well, September did, um, you know, kind of go into that fall market uh, in the area. Uh, and it was the first time in several months that we did see another move up in the uh, average price in Hamilton. So... Uh, not much really changed in September. Supply uh, certainly didn't 
you know, come onto the market with great steam, and uh, that supply-demand issue is still there. So it was it was a very tight, hot market for September. As you mentioned, the price is still going up. The average price in the Hamilton-Burlington areas, 881 and change. That's an increase of nearly 5% from last month. Um, as prices continue to increase, not as much as they were in the spring, though. I mean, the spring was... Uh, a really red-hot time of the year. Why was that? Well, you know, the our supply challenges really started in 2019 when when supply started to mirror uh, what we saw even back in 2017. So supply started to be an issue, and then with COVID, uh, we had that huge COVID uh, bump in the market where people were fleeing to single detached or to a backyard or... Uh, to anything that resembled a, a, um, a single-family home. And, you know, that really, like, we were already going in with low supply. So, uh, you know, January or November, December 2019, January and February, uh, March of 2020, were already shaping up to be very tight markets. So COVID was just the, that was kind of like the final straw. So... Now we're now we are you know limping along on these greatly reduced inventory levels, and it just doesn't seem to be giving up. There was a time, certainly uh, last year, and and probably uh, you know this summer as well, where you know more and more people are working from home, more and more people are spending more time in their backyards, more and more people wanted to put in a pool, and that also led to some demand in terms of buyers wanting homes with pools or with a backyard oasis. Is that still the case? Is are those properties still highly sought after? Well, definitely the uh, homes that have that that uh, ability to have that privacy in the backyard or, or have a little bit more than, um, you know, than what an apartment condo would provide you. Uh, so it's, you know, those are still in super high demand. Uh, so it doesn't matter if it's a, an affordable townhouse or a single family home. Uh, people want that uh, key to the front door and access to uh, space in the backyard. So yeah, looking at how big. Yeah, looking into your uh, crystal ball, what do you expect for October and, and maybe the winter months? Well, we have some, you know, the, the biggest issue that that we have is the fact there just is not the uh, the supply coming onto the market. And the the numbers at the, you know, municipal level that what we're, I just, you know, we just heard that there were record building permits issued. And the fact is, is that they're not the right type of building permits. You know, so the, you know, even though we've maintained our uh, our housing starts in, in the area, we haven't maintained the housing starts of the properties that people need and want. So that's going to continue to to kind of put a stranglehold on our on our uh, properties here in Hamilton. There's nothing for people to move up to. Uh, and there's nothing uh, like who currently own homes to get those homes on the market. Uh, people are opting for renovations, and there's nothing for the new house formations to move into. So, uh, you know, we don't see relief uh, on the horizon here, and, uh, you know, Ontario Real Estate Association is is really pushing municipalities. There's a disconnect between um, between 
the federal government, provincial government, and the municipal levels. So, um, you know, we were truly hoping uh, for the sake of Hamiltonians that something gives here and that we do get more more supply in the market that will allow more movement with the real estate market, but we still see incredibly high demand. That's uh, certainly bad news for first-time home buyers, but we'll have to leave it there. Donna, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining great. us. Great. Thank you so much for having us. Have a great day. You too. That's Donna Bacher, President, Realtors Association of Hamilton, Burlington, getting all verklempt here, th- you know, looking at these numbers. Wake up with the information you need to get the most out of your day. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. WestJet and Swoop have hosted what's being called a restart roundtable in Hamilton to discuss restoring uh, this city's international airport status as we get closer to the post-pandemic days. Here to tell us what was discussed is Charles Duncan. He is the president of Swoop. Charles, good morning. Hey, good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So how did this roundtable go? What was discussed? Well, it went really well, and and uh, we gosh, we we spoke for about ninety minutes or so, and and about a whole range of topics. Uh, you know, going back to uh, WestJet and Swoop's presence there in the Hamilton market, and the you know our, our honestly our love for the Hamilton uh, city and and the whole region there. But uh, as you said, the most pressing uh, issue for us, and we've got really great alignment with the airport and elected officials is around resuming international service from the Hamilton International Airport this winter. And uh, we're excited about that, but we uh, we, we do need uh, some help from the federal government from uh, Transport Canada to make that a reality. And we're just getting uh, all of the horses aligned, if you will, uh, to, to make that happen. So is that a constant discussion? And what's the ETA on that? It, you know, it, it has been constant. In fact, uh, Kathy Puckering, who's the CEO there at the, uh, the John Monroe Airport, uh, it, she and I speak uh, sometimes multiple times a day, but certainly uh, we, we have connected uh, at least once a week for the, the entirety of, of the pandemic here together. Um, and so we're and, and we've, we've always maintained a presence in Hamilton in the darkest days of the pandemic. We maintained an essential level of service because there was some travel domestically that still had to happen uh, for business and uh, for you know, family emergencies and so forth. But we're now pivoting and our, and our, our hope, our expectation is to begin flying in the month of November uh, down to two really great cities in Florida. And then in December, we plan to uh, add three more destinations, uh, Montego Bay in Jamaica, and then Cancun and Puerto Vallarta in Mexico. And uh, right now there are 10 airports across the country that um, have international service um, allowed, and we are uh, aiming, angling, doing all we can to make, to ensure that Hamilton is the 11th. We know that uh, the pandemic has certainly crippled the uh, travel industry. How has your company coped? Uh, look, it, it's been brutal for our company and, uh, and and indeed for all airlines in Canada and, and around the world uh, to put just a few numbers to it. Uh, in, in the darkest days, our demand and our revenue were down 90 uh, percent. And, and uh, you know, none of us, I've been in the industry for 25 years, lived through SARS and 9-11 and other crises. And this is worse than all of them, uh, you know, piled on top of each other. Um, so it, it's been tough for our people. Um, we, we've had to, uh, you know, let go, um, you know, up to 
just over 70, 70% of our people. But one of the great um, aspects of this recovery we're seeing now is that um, we've been recalling, we're now growing, we're focusing on recovery. And in fact, just this week uh, on Monday, we have 33 new flight attendants uh, from the Hamilton area who are training to join SWOOP uh, later, well, next month, but they began their training this month. So it's actually really nice to get, uh, you know, get back to a place where we're hiring new people after uh, all we've lived through. Yeah, that's a great sign. Our guest is Charles Duncan. He's the president of Swoop. We're chatting about a recent restart roundtable in Hamilton, discussing restoring Hamilton International Airport status as a uh, international airport designation. Obviously, federal government approval is needed to get to that uh, destination. Why is air travel critical to uh, post-pandemic recovery efforts in this city? Well, you know, I'll tell you, the, the airport is is an economic engine, uh, you know, for sure. And, and in Hamilton in particular, you've got so much cargo activity, uh, you know, happening, as well as the, uh, the, you know, the passenger side of the business that, uh, that you know, we're, we're talking about now today. Um, just on the WestJet and Swoop side in particular um, alone, um, we've done economic impact studies. And we know that uh, in 2019, before the pandemic, we contributed um, $80 million in uh, in GDP or economic activity, and uh, also uh, were related to 500 full-time equivalent uh, positions just right there in the Hamilton area. And uh, and, and so we need to get that back. It, it really is a, an important part of the economic story and the recovery. And, and, you know, as part of that, too, the federal government has been mandating both that um, uh, all of our employees, and that's every single employee be fully vaccinated uh, by the end of this month. And uh, they are also rolling out a requirement for full vaccination of all of the travelers um, who are on all modes of transportation, not only uh, airlines, but uh, via rail and, and and others. And so we know through that and, and all of the other measures that uh, the airlines and airports are taking that um, it's incredibly safe. And, uh, and and we need to do this for uh, I mean for for many reasons economic recovery I think uh, people's mental sanity and well being are important uh, you know I know in my in my household uh, we are all looking forward to taking a vacation south this winter um, after having uh, skipped one last year so so it's all just about in my mind getting back to uh, a sense of normalcy we've got about a minute left uh, every industry has competition in uh, in Hamilton's case uh, the airport is competing with Toronto certainly Buffalo is in that category as well is hamilton positioned to be a power player when it comes to the airline industry at least from a passenger uh perspective it it, it absolutely is and uh you know and, and maybe just to underscore that point swoop is only about three not not even quite three and a half years old our first city was hamilton and in fact we named our first airplane um after the city of hamilton and uh, we have continued it, it, it's our most important city and uh and, and continues to be a focus of our investments and our growth and uh you know we can absolutely compete with uh, with buffalo uh, and toronto and all the other airports in the region and we're honestly we're, we're um, just so grateful for the support from the region and uh, Hamiltonians and, and even just from the broader Niagara region who choose to come to Hamilton. It's a fantastic airport, easy to navigate. Um, the airport told us yesterday they've measured the distance from the parking lot to the airplane boarding door is 200 steps. And uh, I don't think there's an airport in the country that can beat that. So you, you can't beat the convenience or our low fares. And, uh, you know, we, we just really uh, love and are committed to the Hamilton Airport. Yeah, you take 200 steps in the um, Pearson parking garage. Yeah. You're not even in the airport. Uh, Charles, <laughs> oh, <that's good. laughs> Charles, really appreciate the time today. 
Hey, Rick, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Have a good one. That's Charles Duncan, president of Swoop, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton. How about some news and opinion to go with your coffee? This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. It is nearly Halloween, a few weeks away. Uh, And with that, you know, a lot of people like to watch scary films, horror movies. But the question is... Can horror films cause PTSD? Well, let's ask an expert. He's the CEO of Tripsitter.clinic, and his name is Dr. John Huber. Dr. Huber, how are you? I am amazing. Thank you for having me on, and good morning. (laughs) So I guess the answer is yes. Horror films can cause PTSD? Short answer answer is yes, it can. Absolutely. Uh, It's a little more complicated than that, but yes, yes, it can. And... Part of it has to do with your own level and comfort of, of being shocked and exposed to different things. And if, believe it or not, you've been exposed to maybe something that on its onset in its own didn't cause you any problems, uh, maybe like a car accident, you saw lots of blood and stuff like that. And then you go and watch a horror movie a couple years later and it brings you back to that incident. And all of a sudden now you have uh, the PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, as a combination of the movie and your previous life experience. So there's something uh, within the movie or, or an incident in the movie that's going to trigger that PTSD? Absolutely. Now, there's an interesting study that took place uh, with several of the hospitals in, in New York City uh, in the, the 80s, and what they noticed was that as children were taken to horror movies and they had you start having nightmares and stuff like that and referred to uh, their medical practitioners by their parents that later on as they became adults, they were those kids who had problems with that and had great severe nightmares from the movies. Those were the kids, the first ones to be affected by post-traumatic stress disorder in, in wartime events and things like that. So, you know, because the question has always been, how come you have a whole platoon of, you know, 10, 15 guys and there's one experience and two people have post-traumatic stress disorder from it and the other ones don't. And it has to do with a lot of, of different internal psychological factors, including attachment and attachment with appropriate authority figures and people you love and things like that. I've always thought about, you know, parents of murder victims uh, or survivors of abuse, how they deal with watching these types of films. I'm sure they, they try to stay away, but sometimes it's unavoidable if it's a family setting or, or a holiday or whatever the case is, or maybe they feel comfortable in that moment. But I always, how do they cope with these kind of films? Well, that, that is a coping strategy, actually. Uh, is to stay away. And that, that's a good thing. You know, as a forensic psychologist, I've unfortunately had to deal with a lot of very heinous things that happen to very innocent people. And um, it, it, my wife and my family know that, hey, I may get up and walk out. I just, because I don't want to go there. You know, I, it, it's, it's, and I wasn't affected personally by that, but I was affected because as a human being, you know, I'm asked to help somebody else cope with it. And, uh, it, it, it sometimes means I have to set boundaries with, with what kind of movies and what type of experiences I, I go through. We're chatting with Dr. John Huber. He's a clinical forensic psychologist and CEO of Tripsitter.clinic here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. What are the worst kind of horror movies that may trigger PTSD? 
Wow, you know that that's like that's like asking me what is the best joke out there. Uh, <laughs> everybody has their own personal taste, yeah. um, and some things may affect one person, and another one may may affect somebody else. You know, the movie It, you using a clown, you know that that triggered a lot of people. I remember back, you know, when the the, the most recent version of It came out, um, I had lots of patients coming in dealing with that, and then I had patients who. Their parents were bringing them in because the parents wanted the kids to see the movie because they loved the book and they wanted me to go through with the kids, you know, about that type of stuff and prep them for it. And that's almost kind of, you know, it, it, it's not bad thinking, but we don't know if the person's going to be affected by that. And other people look at the movie it and they say, Oh, that's such a joke and it's not scary. And, you know, it's so farcical and, you know, aliens coming in and all this kind of stuff that uh, it's so unreal to them that it doesn't affect them at all. Um, I think each person has to look internally and, and you know, know what their, their limits are. Um, I, have, I have a friend who is a com- competitive marksman and does shooting in competitions, but uh, total, total vegetarian and does not you know, just, just can't even fathom shooting at an animal, even if it meant, you know, surviving, you know, it's just, they don't want to take a life. And that, that whole prospect is very disturbing to, to her as as a matter of fact. So, um, you have to know yourself and sometimes it means you didn't think something was going to bother you and you show up at the movie and it does. And at that point, that's, that's when I think, it's appropriate then to go and reach out to a mental health professional, even if it's just for a couple of sessions, just to touch base and get grounded and maybe work on some new coping strategies or coping skills that you hadn't thought of because you don't want it to end up being a post-traumatic stress disorder or now it's creating some new anxiety within yourself. Uh, and now you have a long lasting, you know, generalized anxiety disorder or, you know, all of a sudden you and your spouse decide to have kids and now you won't let your kids ever walk to school because of some movie you watched at one point. Great insight and analysis. Dr. Huber, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much and have an amazing morning. Thank you. And uh, yeah, it is interesting. And I've always thought about scary movies and how uh, victims of assault or abuse, uh, tragic incidents, how they're able to you know, watch these kind of films. At the end of the day, it's a movie, it's a production, it's a story. They're actors, it's not real life, it's not really happening before our lives. But as as you heard from Dr. Huber, it does trigger those uh, same emotions or, you know, uh, forces people to relive some of their tragedies. And that is, uh, it's very sad. Um, so, uh, you know, we'll, we'll chat with Dr. Huber, I'm sure, down the road about uh, this sort of thing. Um, you know, each October or whether or not uh, that is a factor in your life, you know, seek some help. Call someone who can help you along and, um, you know, you'll be off uh, on a better footing. Serving up a healthy dose of news, traffic, and engaging opinion. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.